The sermon, the sermon this morning comes from Exodus 20:14. You shall not commit adultery. Short commandment, but loaded. And we're going to unpack it this morning and explore it. I suppose this is the case with uh, any toy, but it certainly applies to a wiffle ball bat in a two-year-old boy's hands. Uh, A wiffle ball bat has a design and a purpose, and that is to hit soft wiffle balls. But when you put that in the hands of a two-year-old boy, it grows beyond that. And it becomes the object that is used to uh, beat the hedges and the bushes and the trees to a bloody pulp. Uh, It becomes the object that is used to poke and prod the sibling and annoy the sibling. Uh, It becomes the object that is the free swinging bat that hits anything moving. Parents, friends, dogs, cats. And there comes that moment as a parent where you have to rein it in and explain the purpose of this object, namely to hit soft wiffle balls, and that's it. That's the design of it. But it has to be reclaimed, it has to be redeemed, brought back to its original purpose. This morning, we're gonna talk about redeemed sexuality. Sexuality as God designed it, as God gave it purpose. And and as you know, and I don't have to spend time explaining this, but sexuality in our culture and in our lives has gone wild. It's nothing new. You read uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church and you'll see that. But we're going to talk about sexuality redeemed or brought back into what God intended for it. That word redeemed means bought back. And so the question on the table is, what are the characteristics of redeemed sexuality? What are the marks of redeemed sexuality that has been brought back and reclaimed for the original purpose that the Lord created it? So first, first characteristic of redeemed sexuality is the love of God. The love of God. I want you to remember the context of these Ten Commandments that we've been working through. God rescues His people out of Egypt, and He brings them to Mount Sinai to give them these commandments because He's trying to form a community. He's fulfilling his promise he gave to Abraham years earlier. I will be your God and you will be my people. He's building a family, a community that's centered around him and loving each other. Jesus, as we've seen, summarizes the Ten Commandments in Matthew 22. He says, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hangs all the law, including the Ten Commandments, including the Seventh Commandment and the prophets. And so God is building a community through these commands, including the one that says, you shall not commit adultery. But within this command, there's a smaller community called marriage that is at the central focus of the seventh commandment. When we talk about marriage and adultery, to talk about marriage and adultery without talking about God 
is like talking about the solar system without talking about the sun. Right? The sun is what makes the solar system the solar system. And so as we talk about adultery and we talk about marriage, God is at the center of it. In fact, God says that marriage is a reflection of God's love. It's a reflection of his covenant that he has made with his people. Another way to say it is this, that behind every horizontal marriage or every aspiring horizontal marriage is a vertical marriage. And I wanna take you on just a brief journey through the Old Testament that you see this vertical marriage that's at the center of everything and certainly at the center of the seventh commandment. The prophets oftentimes speak of God as a loving husband. In fact, when God is bringing his people through the wilderness after Egypt and before the promised land, when he's bringing them through the wilderness, he's wooing them to himself. And he's bringing them home to a house where he can dwell with them. And, and when they commit spiritual adultery and Israel runs off with other gods, this is how God responds. Listen to this out of Hosea eleven, eight. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? Right? They've run. They've run after other gods. And then he says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Lord uses the image of a husband's love to show his love for Israel in Isaiah, throughout Isaiah. Isaiah 54, verses 5 through 7, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. The Lord even gives his people tender names, similar to how a a husband or a wife would give their spouse a, a tender name, he says in Isaiah 62. But you shall, you shall be called Hephzibah, which means my delight is in her, and your, your land Beulah, which means married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. Listen to this. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And then in Ezekiel chapter 16, the Lord's love, and this is just striking. In Ezekiel 16, the Lord's love is compared to a young man who finds an abandoned baby girl in the streets kicking in her blood. And he picks that baby girl up and he washes her and he clothes her. And he takes her in and he provides for her and he watches her grow up into this beautiful young woman. Then he marries her. And then he spreads his cloak over her to protect her and to cherish her and to take her in as his beloved bride. And that chapter is all about what God does with his people. That he takes you in as his beloved. Even though you and I and Israel throughout the Old Testament run after other gods. The scriptures describe you and I 
married to God in the covenant that he made with us. And though we turn and we prostitute and we run after other gods, God says, I will fulfill this covenant and it'll be fulfilled. One day it's gonna be fulfilled, not because of the faithfulness of the bride, but because of the steadfast love of the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. That's where redeemed sexuality starts. You say, why? Why does redeemed sexuality, why does the seventh commandment start there with the covenant steadfast love of God? Well, there's another story in the Old Testament that gives us a clue. It's the story of Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. Rachel and Leah are sisters. Leah is the older, less attractive sister. Rachel is the young, beautiful, attractive sister. And Jacob wants to marry Rachel. So badly that he's willing to serve seven years for his uncle Laban to get Rachel. And after seven years, uncle Laban tricks Jacob. And Jacob goes to bed one night with who he thinks is Rachel. And then we read literally in the Hebrew, in Genesis 29, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Jacob had been waiting seven years for Rachel. And he wakes up to Leah. And he's disappointed. His heart's torn. Listen to how Tim Keller describes this, commenting on what happens. What does this mean? With all respect to this woman, Leah, it means that no matter what we put our hopes in, in the morning, it is always Leah and never Rachel. Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you got married. And one morning you woke up and you come, came to the stunning realization that you didn't marry the person you thought you married. His breath stinks, he makes annoying noises with his body and he leaves his socks on the floor. This is not who I thought it was. I woke up to Leah, not to Rachel. Marriage doesn't solve the problem. That is the deep ache of the human soul. Marriage doesn't solve it. Speak to the single people in the room for a second. Those of you that are single, you need to know that there are married people in this room this morning that wish they were single. Let me speak to the married people for a second. And you probably know this. There are single people in this room that wish they were in your seat that wish they were married. You see, marriage doesn't fix the problem. The problem is the vertical marriage that's broken, where our hearts find complete satisfaction. And so as it applies to adultery, adultery is the never-ending chase to find the Rachel that does not exist. I call it the phantom, and everybody has it. Everybody has a phantom before they get married, and that is the person that you've constructed in your mind 
that is perfect in every way, that's even more perfect than Jesus, if that's possible. It's the phantom that doesn't exist. And then once you get married, one of two things happens. Either you, you acknowledge that the phantom does not exist, or you continue chasing after the phantom through failed marriage after failed marriage, or maybe you keep your marriage, but in adultery, you go elsewhere. Redeemed sexuality starts with the soul-satisfying love of God. That's where it starts, but it goes beyond that. Okay? It goes to second characteristic, love for God. Love for God. We're going to unpack here in Jesus' description of the seventh commandment in Matthew 5, the underlying cause of adultery. And I'm going to read verses 27 to 28 of Matthew 5. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The word for lustful intent here means great desire or inordinate desire, meaning a desire that's not ordinary. It's a great desire. You say, what is that desire? Well, with adultery, it could be a couple of things. It could be a desire for emotional intimacy that you're not getting met in your marriage. Or it could be a desire for physical pleasure that you're not getting met in your marriage. Now, most likely, most likely, it's not that your spouse is not meeting those needs, although there may be some truth to that. What's happened is those desires, God-given desires for emotional intimacy, for physical pleasure, have ballooned to the level of an inordinate desire that have taken control of your heart, that have taken control of your heart, and to a level of desire that no spouse can satisfy. God created us with desires. We're desiring people. That's how he made us. We're wired that way with desires. But if you look at the desires as they play out before sin entered the world in Genesis 1 and 2, what you'll see is Adam and Eve with desires that were in the right proportion. So they had a greater love for God, a greater affection for God, a greater uh, desire for God, and then they had lesser loves for the things in the created order, a lesser love for each other as it was relative to, God, to their greater love for God. And so their, their loves and desires were ordered appropriately and proportionally. And then when sin entered the world and separated them from God, those desires didn't go away. They just got channeled to things in the created world. You think about a uh, you think about a balloon that's full of water, right? You squeeze one end of the balloon, what happens? That water starts to bulge out of the other end. In other words, the same water's in there, it just has to go somewhere. If your love for God, your desire for God, your affections for God are not there, or your soul is not being satisfied by that greater love and that greater affection, Right, then those desires are going to get channeled elsewhere, namely to 
adultery, which behind that may be emotional intimacy, may be physical pleasure. Right? Those desires are going to find somewhere to go if they're not being directed or channeled to God. And as I said earlier, there is no spouse that is capable, designed, even made to meet those desires that get inordinate and out of control. And so what we've said all along in these commandments is you cannot break the seventh commandment without first breaking the first commandment. That something else has become a functional God and that these desires in your heart wage war. That every day there's a battle in your heart for control of your heart. James says it this way in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions right, or your desires are at war within you? And then verse 5 goes on to say, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, he, speaking of, of God, yearns jealously or with great desire over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. So you're not fighting alone. That's the good news. These desires that wage war in you, you're not alone. That God's fighting for you, fighting with you, trying to get those desires and capture them and draw them to himself so that you would believe Psalm 145, 16, that he opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living creature. Now you say, what does this have to do with adultery and marriage? Recognizing that your desires fluctuate day to day. Recognizing that your idolatry rears its ugly head every day and that at any moment your desires are all over the map as God is fighting for you and with you and you're trying to rein in. Recognizing that your desires are all over the map Love for God when it comes to adultery and marriage takes on the form of trust. And here's what I mean by that. When you have that, I woke up in the morning and it was Leah and not Rachel experience. By the way, that applies to everything. Not just your spouse or your kids, it's your job, it's everything, right? But when you have that, that moment I woke up and it was Leah and not Rachel. When maybe your spouse is not meeting your needs how you want them to be met. When maybe you wish your spouse were a little different. Or maybe when you wish that your, your spouse's personality were just tweaked a little bit because it's slightly annoying at times. Right? When you experience that, Right? Love for God takes on the form of trust, which means I trust that God gave me my spouse, that he knew what he was doing, that he handpicked my spouse, and that my spouse is God's best for me. That's what love for God looks like. It's trust. And if you're here this morning and, and you're not married and you're single, right? love for God takes on the form of trust, not only provision for a spouse one day, but also the timing of it. 
so that when you trust God, your focus as a single person can be on not so much finding the right person, but on being the right person. That I can put my focus on becoming and being the right person and trust God in his provision and his timing to give me someone. When your love, affections, and desires are ordered correctly, sexuality is redeemed. And it takes on the design that God intended for it. In marriage, before marriage. Third, what are the characteristics of redeemed sexuality? So love of God, his covenant love over you, that he's, he's husband, this vertical marriage, right? Second, love for God, which takes on the form of trust when your emotions and desires are all over the map. And then third, finally, love for neighbor. Love for neighbor. When you look at the Ten Commandments and you look at the Sermon on the Mount and you compare the context of both of them, it's striking. Moses gives the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. He has rescued, or God has rescued through Moses, God's people. Before they get to Mount Sinai, they have already failed, grumbled, complained, and made a mess of things in the desert before they got to Mount Sinai. And then God gives them the commandments because he's trying to form the sinful people into a community that loves one another. Right? Look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. What happens right before Jesus delivers the Sermon on the Mount, which is really expounding upon the Ten Commandments? Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted in the desert for 40 days, which parallels Israel's 40 years in the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land, except Jesus resists the temptation. He resists Satan. He doesn't complain, grumble, fall prey to it, right? Jesus succeeds, does what Israel couldn't. And then he gives the Sermon on the Mount, which is the Ten Commandments expounded upon, to say, I'm forming a new community, the church, the new Israel, and at the center of these commands are love of neighbor, right? We're in the last six of the Ten Commandments about love for neighbor. And so what we learn here is that this commandment, the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, is a communal command. It's not just an individual command. Biblical sexuality is marked by other-centeredness. Lust and adultery is marked by consumption. Let me say that again. Biblical sexuality is marked by other-centeredness, love of neighbor. Lust and adultery is marked by consumption for self. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 6. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And then here it is. Listen. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. You see, at the heart of the seventh commandment is about wronging someone else. And the word wrong used there in Thessalonians is a word that means to exploit or to take advantage of. You say, now how, how does this, what does this look like? 
What does it look like when we're talking about sexuality to wrong another? And I want to speak on a couple of, of examples here. Let me start with adultery. <clears throat> How does adultery wrong or take advantage of or exploit another? Well, it certainly exploits and wrongs the other person. It certainly wrongs the spouses that are involved. But third, it wrongs the body of Christ because it jeopardizes the witness of the, of the body of Christ, of the community of Christ. Let's talk about uh, sexual immorality as it, as it takes on the form of sex before marriage. You say, how does, how does sex before marriage wrong or take advantage of another? First of all, it certainly, it takes the purity from a person that is designed to be brought into marriage. God has designed sex as a gift, a good gift. He created it. The world didn't. The world has hijacked it. It's, it doesn't belong to the world. It belongs to God. And he gave it to us as a gift to be brought into marriage. And so when, when, when you are involved sexually outside of marriage before marriage, that is stealing from that person the gift that they have to give to somebody else. And that brings up the second point, is that when you are involved in sex outside of marriage or before marriage, you are wronging that person's future spouse. That person's future spouse, because that person that you're involved with belongs to their future spouse. Certainly first to the Lord, but to their future spouse. And so if I can speak for a moment to students in the room, whether you're senior high or a college student or a young profession, when you are sexually involved before marriage, whoever that is you're dating, okay, you are handling somebody else's property. First and foremost, that person belongs to the Lord, but second, they belong to their future spouse, whoever that is. And so my, my message, and I think God's message to you would be, don't ruin somebody else's life for selfish gain. Now let me move on to a third example, pornography. Which interesting, the, the word sexual immorality in the New Testament in the Greek is porneia. It's where we get the word pornography. Of course, sexual morality is, is much larger than pornography, but I'll speak to pornography for, for a second. How does pornography wrong or take advantage of or exploit another person? One of the common arguments is nobody else is involved. Nobody else is physically involved. And I would say, no, somebody is involved. And, and just like we would say to a 13-year-old girl who's involved in sex trafficking in Thailand, who's being exploited, right, for financial gain. In the same way, there is a person, a live person on the other end of that screen who's being exploited for financial gain. Whether they choose to do it or not, they're enslaved. And when you participate, you're contributing to that person's slavery and to the business they're involved, which is a billion-dollar business in our culture. And so while it seems like I'm not involving somebody, you are. Multiple people who are being enslaved through the business. 
The second thing about pornography is that it's a sin against your spouse. It will wreck your marriage. And if you're not married yet, it will wreck your future marriage. It will. Now, this morning in a room this size, there are probably those of you that are involved in an adulterous relationship right now, maybe physically, maybe just emotionally, and nobody knows about it. Some of you are not married yet and you're sexually involved in a relationship and nobody knows about it. And for some of you, you're in a pornographic relationship with multiple women that you don't know. With everybody, and even as Jesus levels it down to lustful intent, just the thought life, when you arrive at that place of shame and guilt, covered with adultery, emotional, physical, sexual morality, pornography, what do you do? There's a story in John chapter 8 about a woman who's caught in adultery. The Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. And so they go out and they find this woman. And they find her and they catch her in the act of adultery, which means they enter this home and probably enter the bedroom. And they drag this woman out and they drag her to the temple. And we can presume she probably at that point is covered in a sheet. Her sin is public. Her shame is before everybody. And they drag her before Jesus to see what Jesus will do. And listen to what Jesus says. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And slowly the stones start to drop. And one by one, everybody leaves until Jesus is the only one left before this sinful, adulterous, shamed woman. Jesus was the only one without sin. Jesus was the only one that could have thrown the stone at her. Listen to what he says to the woman. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she said. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus Christ was condemned in your place on the cross if you trust him. Why was he condemned? Because all of your sin, all of your adultery and your sexual immorality was put on Jesus. He paid for it. And so he looks at you and he says, you are forgiven. There's no condemnation for you. And I know there's some of you here this morning that have been in an adulterous relationship and God has rescued you out of it and you have heard those sweet words. You're forgiven. And for those of you now who are in the midst of it, 
Jesus says, you're forgiven. Now turn from your adultery. Turn from your sexual immorality. Turn from your pornography. And come to me. Where we read in Psalm 149, Jesus stands with his hand open, ready to satisfy the deepest, deepest longings and desires of your heart. That's redeemed sexuality. Let's pray. Father, there are people here this morning that are locked in chains. There are people here this morning that are trembling inside because your spirit has convicted them of the secret life they've been living. And we pray, Father, that you would shower them with your grace and your forgiveness, that by your Spirit you would move them to repentance that would, would involve not just repentance towards you, but confession to somebody else, that the shades would be pulled on the dark room, that light would come in. And that they would experience freedom. Father, would you reorient our hearts and our minds around sexuality as you intended it, to celebrate it as the gift you've given your people, but that it would be used as you designed it within marriage. And that all of our desires that have gone unchecked and gone wild and crazy because our vertical marriage is broken, would you, Father, by your covenant, by your love, by your pursuit, would you restore the vertical marriages in this room? And that that would be the beginning of healing, horizontally. And for those that are single, that are longing to be married, and in that painful place, Father, would you fill them? Would you be husband, bridegroom. Oh, Jesus, we need you this morning. And as we close in worship, would we sing of our need for you? And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.